Welcome to Texas Style Coworking. The ranch office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at the ranch. In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Today, my guest on the show is Russell Treat. Russell is the uh, president and CEO of Interact Energy Services. Russell, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here, Russell. Okay, so therein lies the problem. Okay, so your name is Russell, my name is Russell, but I'm not sure which one, but either your parents or my parents couldn't spell. Well, I think I was a big baby and mama was tired and couldn't add the second L. So I'll only <laughs> put one L on the birth certificate. Okay, so it's Russell with one L and I'm Russell with two L's. And you know, the funny part is, and I don't understand why. Maybe somebody with a psychology degree out there is listening right now and they can contact me on LinkedIn. Let me know why. But when somebody spells my name with only one L, it just really bothers me. <laughs> oh, I'm the same way when they spell mine with two and mine's the When they spell yours spell. with two? <laughs> yeah. I will tell you this. On my MBA diploma, I had to send it back twice before they got it right. <laughs> well, that's a good segue right there. In fact, I'll skip the rest of what I was going to say about Russell and we'll just go straight to there. Tell me about yourself. Give me some of your background. Yeah, sure. So I'm a civil engineer by education. I went to Texas A&M. Out of A&M, I spent a number of years in the Air Force as a uh, facilities engineer, combat engineer. So you were in the Corps? I was. I was in the Corps. I was in the band at A&M. Oh, wow. So I got to ask, what instrument did you play? Now, that's another interesting question. I played what is technically called a sousaphone, what most people improperly call a tuba. A tuba is actually an instrument that's kind of like a baritone and sits in front of you where a sousaphone wraps over your shoulder, and which we in the Aggie band call the bass horn because, you know, we have to have a special name for everything. So there you go, folks. That's why you listen to this podcast. I mean, the information, the education you get on this is just incredible. Things you didn't even know you needed to know. Right. So you were in the court A&M, you go into the Air Force. Sure. So I got out of the Air Force. I went to work for a cryogenics company, an air products company called British Oxygen Company. I did that for about three years, working primarily with liquid nitrogen, liquid CO2 for cryogenic freezing applications. I did some pH control and some burner tip stuff and some other things as well, but primarily working with cryogenics. And then Left that company and I started my first business and very quickly I merged that business into another company called Software Marketing. And what we would do is we would find what we call a software device. Now you got to realize this was in the early 80s. This is before software was really even an industry. But we would find these devices typically built by engineering firms that weren't products, meaning no roadmap, no marketing strategy, no sales organization, no training program, all that sort of thing. And we would build all that out and commercialize products. And I did that enough to learn that what I really need to do is focus on oil and gas. So in 1993, I took a position running a company called BMP Energy Systems, which was building software for back office gas measurement accounting, putting together software to help companies react to 
For quarter 633, which is the order that deregulated uh, gas pipelines, turned them into common carriers from buyers and sellers of natural gas. And then left that company in 98, started Intersys, and that's kind of the background. Kind of a circuitous route to becoming a pipelining guy. I was just about to jump into that, but you just named the company Intersys, and I called it Interact. Let me clarify that. So Interact is a holding company. We have three subsidiaries, Intersys, PI Confluence, and Gas Certification Institute. Intersys is kind of the flagship. It's the biggest company. It's been around the longest, and it is historically focused on SCADA and control room and has a set of tools for control room management, which is a regulatory requirement for regulated pipelines. PI Confluence, which effective January 1 became part of Intersys, is a company that has software for pipeline safety management systems, particularly for integrity management, damage prevention, public awareness, the various safety programs that are required under PHMSA. And then Gas Certification Institute provides training and standard operating procedures for field operations practice. Okay. So you just said the word that's near and dear to my heart, safety. And actually, when I look on your website, you use some terms there that probably some of us don't know what you're talking about, SCADA and all that kind of stuff. Your website says you support pipeline control room management. And I guess that's what you just described right there. Yeah. So I probably should build a little context around all that. So Intersys started out doing measurement projects and SCADA projects. This was in the late 90s. So SCADA is supervisor control and data acquisition. So that's the software that gathers data from all the pressure sensing and pump control devices in the field, brings it back and puts it into pretty cartoons on the screens in a dark room in a big building in a downtown someplace. Basically where somebody sits 24 hours a day, seven days a week and operates the pipeline. Control room management is a regulatory requirement that came primarily out of the Bellingham incident. So Bellingham was a pipeline incident in Bellingham, Washington on the Olympic pipeline where a large amount of gasoline went into a creek going through a city, caught fire, and it killed some children. One of the contributing factors to that incident was what was going on in the control room related to updating software and getting too many alarms and some other things. And all that kind of got rolled into a rulemaking called control room management. So in 2007, when that rule was coming out, Intersys really kind of dug deep and focused really deeply into that. Now we have a whole suite of tools that offer a solution to provide alarm management tools and fatigue management tools and scheduling tools and log tools and other things that are necessary in the control room to help it operate a pipeline safely and in compliance with the regulatory. Okay. So let's talk about operating pipeline safely. So Intersyst, this is proprietary software to you guys or what? Yeah, it's proprietary software. Yes. Okay. All right. Well then let's talk about pipelines and safety and how your software makes that happen. Yeah, perfect. So let me build a little context. So I would say that in 2010, 2011 timeframe as the control room management, control room management rule went into effect in 2010 and all pipelines had to be fully compliant in 2012. In that time frame, we were evaluating our business and kind of looking at the future. And frankly, my background, my MBA is in quality management and quality management is the base science that safety management comes out of. Quality management is kind of 
trying to get to an outcome of a quality product and safety management is prohibit the outcome of an incident. The basic science of all that's the same. Got excited about the opportunity to apply software in the control room and focus on improved safety. So there were a number of things going on in control rooms prior to this rulemaking that were contributing to, I would call, poor safety performance. I just call it that. Things like alarm flood. So alarm flood is I'm sitting in front of my console and I'm looking at a bank of computer screens and I've got so many alarms coming in that I don't have any time to actually understand how I'm operating my pipeline. I'm just kind of think of an email flood. I'm getting so many emails coming in at me and they all require action and I don't know what to do. And basically all I do is answer email. I don't actually do my other job. Kind of the same thing. There were also a lot of fatigue issues where people were working long shifts, they were working overtime, they were working double shifts. And that can be and has been in a number of not just pipeline incidents, but chemical refinery incidents and petrochemical incidents. A lot of those things tend to happen in the hours between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, which is when humans are very naturally fatigued. And then if work is needlessly complex or if there's needless activity or if it's got high cognitive load, I got to think hard. All of those kinds of things contribute to poor safety performance. So control room management is all about getting rid of all that, making sure you only get a few alarms and those few alarms actually provide something meaningful. Making sure that you're not scheduling people when they're fatigued. And one of the interesting things about fatigue, if you study that science, is that you often don't know you're fatigued until long after you're really fatigued. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of very interesting studies on this that I read a whole stack of research where there was a whole bunch of research done where people were doing driving simulators and they would fatigue the driving simulators and they would measure lane departures. And there's a level of fatigue that you hit where you start having lane departures, but you're not really aware of the fact you're fatigued yet, which is really dangerous. And the same thing happens in control rooms and so forth. If you schedule people and you make sure that when they're doing their turns, they get appropriate amount of sleep and they have time to manage their turns and all that kind of stuff, then So fatigue mitigation is a big part of control room management to make sure that the people that are running these pipelines are alert and have appropriate cognitive capacity to be successful in performing their job. Okay. So that's a matter of schedule. I mean, how do you do that? That's a great conversation. So the first thing is I got to get enough sleep. One of the requirements in the rule is that a controller has to have the opportunity for eight hours sleep between shifts. So I have to have time to get off work, drive home, get a shower, get to bed, get eight hours sleep, get up, get to work. So I can't tell my buddy, hey man, my kid's got a little league game tonight and I need you to cover for me and I'll do the same thing for you next month or something like that, huh? Well, you can, but there's risk associated with it, okay? One of the other things that impacts fatigue is when I'm doing my turn, so I'm going from days to night, I need to have a longer period of time to manage that turn. Okay. Likewise, if I'm working extended shifts, so typical shifts are 12 hours, I can work up to 14 on a shift without having a violation. 
but I can only work, uh, gosh, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I think it's 68 hours in any slide in seven days. So the total amount of work impacts fatigue. I'm tireder at the end of a seven day. If I'm working offshore and I'm doing 12 sevens and then rotating, I'm tireder at the end of that 12 sevens than I am at the beginning. Right. Or I'm more fatigued. Tiredness is kind of different than fatigue, but I'm going to get needlessly technical. So there's all kinds of rules. And then you have these issues of, well, when you have to do something different than the standard, I've got to put things in place to mitigate fatigue. So mitigate fatigue could be, well, I need to get up and do some exercise. So a lot of control rooms these days have exercise bikes or treadmills or have a room where people can exercise. There's different methods of fatigue mitigation. Exercise is a big one. Getting up, walking around, getting away from the console for a period of time. Yeah, just taking a break. Yeah, coffee, caffeine. What's interesting about caffeine is a little caffeine helps, but if you drink a lot of caffeine, it actually has the opposite effect. So you have to use caffeine strategically. Some people actually have what I call an apatorium, a room with a chair, and I can go in there and I can get a 20-minute nap. Those can be really empowering. Again, there's a whole science around that. 20 minutes is enough to get rested, but it's not enough to enter a REM cycle. If you enter a REM cycle, you need two hours. If you interrupt the REM cycle, you actually increase fatigue. Yeah, you feel worse than if you'd have taken a nap in the first place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When you take a 20-minute nap, you get up, you feel better. You take a one-hour nap, you feel like crap. Right, exactly. So all these standards, who sets these API or what? The rule, the law, if you will, is all set by FEMSA. That's the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration. They're part of the Department of Transportation, so the same. they're kind of an equivalent organization to the FAA. And they manage all transportation of hazardous materials by pipeline, rail, and truck. So FEMSA is the regulator that oversees pipelines. They're chartered by Congress to write the rules in compliance with what Congress is asking for, and then to inspect the operators to make sure they're complying to the rules. And they have authority when they find deviations from compliance deviations, they have authority to set fines and corrective actions with the operators. Okay. And then I guess if you're talking about standards and stuff, now we're talking about pipeline integrity or quality assurance or what? Yeah. Another great question. I've listened to your pipeline, Russell, and I know you talk a lot about HS&E and HS&E and the typical OSHA requirements, which I would call slip strips and falls. That's kind of one type of safety on a personal safety. In the pipeline world, ditching is a big part of that. But process safety is more what you find in the chemical world and is more about the facility and keeping the facility safe. So in the pipeline world, there's a relatively new API standard. It is not a regulatory requirement, but it's pretty much being universally adopted by pipeliners called API 1173, and that's Pipeline Safety Management Systems. And it sets the standards for pipeline safety, and it ropes in a whole bunch of other API standards around control room management, leak detection, integrity management, which is making sure that the metal doesn't fail, and others for damage prevention and public awareness, stakeholder engagement, other aspects that relate to some of these are directly driven by FEMSA, and FEMSA often takes these standards and ropes them into its requirements. They incorporate them by reference into the law. 
Okay. But pipeline safety management is really where the industry is beginning to focus. That standard is about five years old and is very quickly being universally adopted across the industry. Okay. So something that I didn't mention, you're a podcast host yourself. You've got a podcast called Pipeliners Podcast. Is that right? Yes, sir. I do. And thank you for bringing that up. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm more than happy. So I guess it's available on Apple, Spotify, whatever. Yeah. It's wherever you can find a podcast, you can find the Pipeliners Podcast. Okay. And what's your podcast about? It's kind of interesting. When we were starting out with Intersys and we were trying to bring our new control room management software to market, we were pretty well known amongst the companies we had done projects for, but not broadly known across the pipeline industry. And when I was looking at the whole, what I would think the future of pipeline safety was going to be, I saw a lot of opportunity and a lot of need for new systems, new tools, new software. So started the podcast in 2017 as a way to learn about parts of pipelining I didn't know about at the time and as a way to do what I call education through conversation. So I find experts on integrity management, leak detection, edge computer processing, image analysis, use of satellites for finding geotechnical faults with pipelines and just a whole array of things. And I ask them questions. So basically, it's driven by a subject matter expert's expertise and my curiosity. And it's a way for pipeliners to learn all about pipelining. I try to keep it pretty technical. I do cover a lot of regulatory and rulemaking issues. But I really try to cover the gamut of things that pipeliners would need to know in order to really understand the entirety of the business. Are pipelines safe? Is driving your car safe? (laughs) It can be. Ah, Well, there you go. That's a perfect answer. You have your answer. (laughs) I think the answer is what is true about pipelines is they are by far the safest way to move hazardous materials. If you look at the number of incidents and the amount of product lost through pipelining versus through truck transportation or train transportation, pipelines are way safer in terms of the volume they move. Actually, that was the answer I was looking for. That's how I should have phrased it, but go on. Yeah, well, like anything else, they're only as safe as the operator and the practices and the policies and the practices followed in order to operate that asset. But we're making great progress in that now, especially with systems like yours. Yeah, FIMS actually keeps records on this, and you can actually see the number of incidents and the consequences of those incidents dropping over the last 15, 20 years in a pretty significant way. I have a theory about what's required to get to another level of performance and safety in the pipeline space, but I'll save that for when you ask me that question. let's hear the theory one of the things we talk about a lot of the hse guys that i talk to that's something that they talk about all the time they say if you ever get to the point where in fact you talk about process safety i interviewed the baker hughes process safety guy i guess it was about a year ago or something like that dan lepsack and that was something he was really big on he says if i ever come into my office on any given day and i sit down i say everything's great and we don't need to do anything You either have to be constantly improving. It's kind of like that sleep thing. You would have been better off not having the nap. You've got to constantly be saying we haven't arrived. 
Yeah, there's a level of a constant vigilance required. Absolutely. And it's really challenging, like any other kind of heavy process industry, to understand where is your greatest risk and where should I spend my marginal safety dollar. What I would say is in the pipeline space, in the last 25 years, we've made huge improvements in the inspections tools we use, what's called ILI or smart pigs, the devices that we run inside the pipelines and look for cracks and metal loss and corrosion and weld faults and all of that kind of stuff. We've come a long, long ways. Those tools have greatly improved. I think to get to the next order of magnitude of safety performance in the pipeline space, it's going to be all about management systems and particularly safety management systems. The industry's on a journey. We're always striving to get better and we're making lots of progress, but there's lots more to be done. So these improvements in these systems and stuff, I'll throw out the big buzzword for today, AI. Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Actually, not yet. I think we're a bit early. I mean, there are places where people are applying AI and pipelining. There's a lot of that being done in large capture image where they're applying AI to find things that would indicate faults that primarily to lower the human interaction required to analyze the data. But there's not a lot that's being applied in terms of managing the safety programs yet. Let me back up a little bit. If you think about process safety as a process, I have to understand the elements in the process, and then I've got to build risk analysis around each of those elements. And then I got to have a mechanism to score those risk elements and a mechanism to bring new data in and refresh my risk register. Right now, I think where our industry is, is everybody has something in place, but there's not a lot of common understanding about what those risk registers ought to look like. And I think where we are is we're trying to get to that common understanding. Once we're there, there'll be more of an opportunity to apply AI. Do you ever come across the phrase human performance, like in the safety and aviation industries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a big thing in any kind of safety management system. I call that the organizational elements. Yeah, well, in fact, I guess it was kind of the nuclear industry that started or it came out of the nuclear industry and everybody started talking about human performance. It was called HP. Ironically, in the nuclear industry, it's called HU. And the reason for that was they already had some kind of acronym for HP. So they had to adopt a different one when they were talking about human performance. But it's pretty much called now instead of HP, it's called HOP. So human organizational performance, which speaks right to what you just said. Yeah, there's been some really good work done in that domain. In fact, there's a book that was written by a couple of Australian PhDs where they took a look at a couple of major pipeline incidents. They looked at San Bruno that occurred in the San Francisco area with PG&E, and they looked at Marshall, which occurred in Michigan with Enbridge, and they did an analysis of those and kind of looked at the human, I call that human factors but the human factors related to those incidents and made some observations and did some analysis. So there's been a lot of good work done there. There's a lot of things in API 1173. There's a scorecarding mechanism in API 1173, and the API has a website. You can actually download the tool set for doing your own internal scorecarding. And that scorecarding, but it's more cultural than actual performance. It's not real deep yet. And I think that just goes to the level of maturity we have in the programs because they're relatively new. It takes 15 years for a program to kind of mature in any heavy industry. 
Right, right. Well, that's a perfect spot for us to put a plug on it, I guess, because the sponsor of this podcast is a company called KnowledgeVine. And KnowledgeVine, they're experts in human performance taken from the principles of the nuclear and aviation industry. And they also have a book called Remedy, the formula for an evolving human performance culture. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. And the reason I mention it, not only is it a great book, but I still have a few supplies left. My listeners can actually get a free copy of the book if you reach out to me on LinkedIn and request it. Russell, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really feel good, and I'm glad to promote the huge improvements that have been made in pipeline safety, and I thank you for sharing those. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast and talk to your audience, Russell, and I think you're doing the good work and keep it up. As it is always true with safety, I was safe today. I need to be safe tomorrow. There you go. All right, folks. So check it out. It's Pipeliners Podcast with Russell Treat. And tune in again next week. We thank you for listening this week. We thank you for listening all the time. And please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn, all your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or the review link in the show notes. That is real easy to do. We appreciate those comments when we get them. You can always reach out to me on LinkedIn for any show suggestions on topics or guests, or if you're looking for a speaker, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Russell. Hey, thank you. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.